The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Doctor's Lounge. You're listening to Dr. Scott Barber, and I'm talking to you on America's Web Radio. Welcome to the show. Today, we're going to talk about answering the question, is government really looking out for you? Now, this show is always talking about the virtues of free market medicine, and I'm always trying to warn you against the dangers of socialized medicine. And sadly, uh, with each passing year, the government seems to get a, a more and more of a stranglehold over our health care. Now, fortunately, there are some people that are fighting back. We see advances in direct primary care with a lot of doctors out there uh, doing a lot of great work. But there are a lot of difficulties for us to overcome. Uh, and you, are, you guys are going to need to support your private medicine in order to give people and doctors who want to provide free market medicine an avenue to be able to to promote that care and a lot of it is going to be sort of like the private school system i think uh, people have understood for a very long time that there are a lot of limitations to the public education system that with the penetration of the teachers unions and the sad reality that the teachers unions are not necessarily looking out for our kids but they're looking out for themselves and uh, using a lot of that money for maintaining and growing political power, people have found uh, relief in a private school system. I know my parents saved my life many years ago by getting me out of the public school system and getting me into an amazing private school. I went to Punahou, uh, which is an awesome school for any of you who are familiar with Hawaii. I love that place. Uh, it made my life by teaching me uh, how to be a good student, exposing me to all sorts of things, including arts and music and sports of every kind uh, and great academics. And also, most importantly, putting me in an environment where other people were like-minded, that were self-motivated, that were uh, people that wanted to go out into the world and accomplish something. And just by being in that environment, it really motivated me to go out and, and be the best that I could be. And I often think what would have happened to me if I had been stuck in a public school I've shared my story with you guys several times about my severe reading disability that I didn't even discover until after I graduated from college. I had to go back and learn how to read. Uh, I had to take the medical college admissions test twice for me to discover that I had this severe reading disability. And it was uh, a medical doctor that I met at Georgetown University who looked at my scores and made the astute observation that I obviously had this reading disability. And so I was able to go back and 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 learn how to read. I eventually got into medical school, eventually became an orthopedic surgeon. And as I like to say, the rest is history. But I could have never done that if I'd have been stuck in a public school system that made no allowances for for people who learn differently. Things have changed a lot in in in, in the last several decades. But education is really important. And I know with my own children, one of the things that compelled me to get them into private school was my inability to go complain about things that I didn't like. In a public school setting, you're often... Uh, not allowed to talk to to a teacher, and even if you did, 
they they will tell you just like all government entities that their hands are tied and there's nothing they can do and you really don't have an avenue to be able to to complain or to ask for certain accommodations that will benefit your children and at a private school where we're using our own money to to fund their education we have a a much greater voice a much bigger voice and because the school has a relationship with us they they attend to our needs uh, much more uh, advantageously that i could get at a public school and the the sort of the side thing of that is i have to pay for that out of my own pocket i'm still paying taxes to pay for the public school but i've i value my kids education enough that i'm willing to spend the extra money to pay for their their education at a private school now on health care that's difficult and the reason is when most of us are young and healthy we don't really access the health care system and so we don't appreciate just how poor the government controlled uh, system is and, and listen I know a lot of people out there are still under the delusion that we have free market health care in this system but with the passage of the Affordable Care Act where the government essentially told uh, medical insurance companies this is what you have to provide you know you have to provide um, uh, prenatal care for a postmenopausal woman uh, they tell you what you have to pay for or what you have to provide in the policy. They tell you how much you can charge for it. And then at the end of the day, the insurance companies are only allowed to lose so much money, in which case those those losses then get put on to the taxpayer. So essentially, it doesn't matter if you have Blue Cross Blue Shield or you have Aetna or whatever. They're all controlled by the same Affordable Care Act that controls their business model and as such makes it impossible for them to offer us policies that would benefit us. Like, for example, if you're young and healthy, you simply want a catastrophic policy uh, that uh, has some limitations to it. And it's really there to protect you if you get hit by a bus or if you develop cancer. And then as you get older and you have a family, there are certain bells and whistles that you used to be able to get with an insurance policy and you could pay more money to get a different kind of coverage. Now all that is gone. It's one size fits all. And I'm sorry, it's completely controlled by government at this point. And you have a few stragglers out there, uh, direct primary care doctors, and others like myself that are trying to provide free market medicine, but it is extremely difficult. And in order for us to really fight back and be able to get our healthcare system back on a free market trajectory, people are going to have to recognize how valuable their healthcare is, and you're going to have to support these these entities that are trying to rise up and provide free market medical care options. Now, when I first got into medicine, it was a pretty difficult. Um, task. And the reason was most people really couldn't tell the difference between the health care that they got with their traditional insurance versus what they would pay f- a, a cash uh, uh, insurance plan or a cash uh, medical care. It was very similar. And so for most people, it was cheaper to do the insurance route. But now as the government penetration and control of our healthcare system has grown, we now have a majority of physicians who are employed uh, either by hospital systems or large uh, groups that are heavily relying upon the hospital system. Uh, Medicare and Medicaid uh, control 
the the rules and regulations surrounding healthcare it makes it very difficult for private physicians to tailor healthcare towards you. And I really want to share with you, kind of from the ground up, why free market medicine is so important and why government run healthcare can never service your needs in the way that you need it. Now, I think about when I first got to medical school. I, in, in my case, it took me five applications. I, I didn't get accepted until my fifth try. And at that time, I remember thinking to myself, man, these people in medical school are going to be the best people on the planet. I'm never going to find a better cross-section of society than these great people that are becoming doctors. And then when I got to medical school, I realized they're no different than anybody else. There's some good people. There's some bad people. They all have the same human flaws that we all have. One of the things that they all tended to have in common was that they were good at taking standardized tests, which, as I've learned in the long run, isn't necessarily have a good correlation with how great of a doctor you're going to be. But suffice it to say, we get to medical school, and like any any school, you know, we, we started to to uh, get to know each other. You start to settle into school. And I remember some of the unique things about medical school was it is an incredible pressure cooker, you know. You're, when you're in academics, you know, you kind of go to kindergarten or preschool and, and kindergarten and grade school, and then you get to middle school and high school, and it kind of gets a little bit more difficult as time goes on. The amount of work that you have to do increases. The amount of homework that you have to do uh, increases. As you get older, you start to kind of understand that if you want more options in life, that the better you do in school, the easier it's going to become. And so a lot of people put pressure on themselves to succeed. In my humble opinion, I think that's a mistake with our education system. I think a middle school kid that uh, doesn't do well in their pre-SATs thinking that their life is over is utterly ridiculous, and I'm living proof of that. Um, I think the highest score I ever got in an SAT exam was a 1080 uh, out of 1600, and I believe that's what it is today. And uh, just so for those of you who are not familiar with SAT scores, a 1080 is not going to get you into Stanford or Harvard. Um, But the point is, that is not the only measure of success in this world. And the um, there's so many other important factors in being a successful and contributing human. Most of it has to do with virtues, hard work ethic, how you treat people. Uh, gratitude, I think, is one of the most important things that I've been trained and that I've learned uh, in in life is that gratitude for the things that you have is what really makes for a fulfilling and healthy life and then service to others. And anyway, you get into medical school, and I really wanted to be a sports medicine doctor. In order to be a sports medicine doctor, you had to get into orthopedic surgery. Now, when you get to medical school, there are certain specialties that are difficult to get into. They're very competitive. And then there are other specialties that are not so competitive. And let me just preface by saying there are some of the smartest, most uh, wonderful people in every specialty. I am not at all saying that one specialty has all the smart people and another specialty has all the unsmart people. That is not what I'm saying at all. What I am saying is there is a level of competition for certain things. And when I was in medical school, the most difficult uh, specialty to get into was orthopedic surgery. And the reason was that orthopedic surgeons tended to make the highest salaries and it's the most fun. 
and that has never changed. Orthopedic surgery to me is the most fun uh, medicine that you can do, but other people have other goals and other values, which is normal, and thank God that they do because we need doctors of every kind. And uh, there are some people who love children. I could never be a pediatrician. I love kids, but dealing with sick and injured kids takes a very special uh, human being to be able to to deal with that. It's it's very soul sucking when when a child is hurt and injured, especially if there's not much you can do about it. And so, in my view, pediatricians are very special people. There are others who are psychiatrists. I know I came across some doctors who. Uh, got into medicine and when they actually started getting on the floors and interacting with people they realized that that was too much people <laughs> that they actually didn't like people enough to be able to to be in that intimate setting in the doctor patient relationship and so that might guide them into uh subspecialties like radiology where maybe there's a little less person to person interaction um there there were uh, all sorts of people. There were some people who like research and they like academics. Um, there's just, a, you know, an infinite number of desires and things that motivate people. But a lot of it had to do with the amount of money that you could make and and how fun it was. So the things that people wanted to get into when I was in medical school, orthopedic surgery was number one, neurosurgery, ENT, things like that. And then there were other subspecialties that were easier to get into, like neurology, internal medicine, family medicine, and things like that. And so the competition in medical school was about getting grades that allowed you to make the choice into what you wanted to get. So if you graduate at the bottom of the class, you're going to have a really tough time getting into orthopedics. Not impossible, but it definitely made the 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 job or the task uh, much more difficult. Now, over the years, as I look back on that, I have often said to myself, why should one doctor make more money than another doctor just by virtue of the specialty. And I mean, some of it has to do with the training. You know, if you go into family medicine or internal medicine, it's a three-year residency program. And for orthopedic surgery, it's five years. For neurosurgery, in some situations, it's eight years. Uh, Plastic surgeons kind of do six years. Uh, So there's a different level of training. um, And you could see where that would kind of uh, fold into a higher salary. But a lot of it has to do with what the government places value on. Now, I look at when I look at medicine right now, I look at medicine primarily controlled by Medicare and Medicaid. The government controls Medicare and Medicaid. Medicare is the government-run system for people 65 and older, and Medicaid is for uh, poor people, and then there's S-CHIP for, for children that are of uh, from poor families. And I know I always have to preface this stuff because people want to put words into my mouth. I'm not opposed to charity. I do more charity care than most people on the planet. Not that I'm a great person for it. It's just what I do. It's part of being a doctor. What I'm saying is, what can we do to give the best health care to everyone? And government-run health care is not that method. We see all across the world uh, places where government-run health care is in control, massive, massive debt, massive weight lines, and very limited care. I always tell the story about the premier of Newfoundland up in Canada who was 
a, a big advocate for government-run health care uh, at the time that the Affordable Care Act was being debated, and he developed a heart condition and had to fly to Miami to get his heart surgery. And when he was confronted about this apparent hypocrisy, he said, well, this is my health and I get to do what I want for my own health, something like that. I'm paraphrasing. And I thought to myself, wow, isn't that so classic? You know, the rich, the powerful, the connected, they always get private care. But us peasants have to be stuck in this government-run program. And that is what I'm fighting against. And I always find it hard to 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 believe that people can't understand. And, and I don't know that they don't understand. Maybe they're just not connecting the dots. But people do what they are incentivized to do. And, and I go back to when I first got to medical school. It took me five years to get accepted. I thought these people were going to be super special. And what I found out is they're just like any other cross-section of society. Some good, some bad, some smart, some, some hardworking, some on the lazier side. Um, again, they tend to be good at taking standardized tests, but there was nothing about these people that was was extra special, me included. I mean, I was just another person, and I'm a sinner like the rest of you. I have flaws and failings, and I wake up um, worried about things that I probably ought not to be worried about. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a person. And the thing is, people behave like people which means they do what they are incentivized to do and they don't do what they're not incentivized to do. And one of the basic things about healthcare in a private setting is that when I have a traditional doctor-patient relationship, my fidelity is to that patient. And that is the patient. The patient is the person who holds me accountable. They're the one that makes sure that I'm up to date on my medicine. Because if I'm wrong and they go elsewhere and get a different opinion, they'll they'll leave. Or if I do something wrong, they could they could sue me. Uh, they have to make sure I show up on time. They have to make sure that I give them enough time to discuss what their particular issues are. In a government-run system, that's not the case. It is so easy as an employee of a hospital system or in a government-run system to blame the bureaucracy on your inability to provide the care, and you're able to separate yourself out from the patient, and it affects the doctor-patient relationship because the fidelity of the doctor is no longer to the patient. It is to their employer, the hospital system, or whatever. And, you know, I think about how obvious this is to me and I I remember when I was young I used to go camping uh, with my buddies in college we would we'd go up on the Feather River in California and uh, we would set up and get the tent set up and we'd go river rafting and and we'd play wiffle ball and it was a great time with all my buddies and I remember every time we'd go up there there were always some guys who would go out and collect firewood there were some people who would set up the tents there were some people who would begin cooking the food and there were always some people who would set up a lawn chair, crack a beer, and sit there and watch everybody doing the work. Now, when it came to that camping, it wasn't that big a deal if people pitched in or didn't pitch in. But that's no different than life. As time goes on, people do what they are incentivized to do, meaning they will do a job for some sort of reward. And if they're not rewarded, they won't do this job, which makes the point that it is impossible to confer the right of health care onto somebody because there is no way for anybody to have the right to health care without compelling somebody else to commit a massive amount of labor, going to medical school, learning all that stuff, training, practicing, uh, and then and then beginning uh, to become a physician. 
Uh, there's no way that you could compel somebody to do that for free. There has to be a reward to it. And the reward has to be commensurate with the amount of work that they put in. Now, as government penetration has increased over time, we have seen that government values what they value medicine-wise, and they don't value certain things. And so what happens is you get doctors who are unwilling to do some jobs and they're willing to do other jobs to a point, but just to the point where they feel like they're being compensated. And what, what I mean is I'm an orthopedic surgeon. Let's say I'm an orthopedic surgeon in a government-run system. If I'm getting paid a certain amount of money, I'm going to work a certain number of hours and I'm out. I'm going to go be with my family and I'm going to do other things. I do what I think I should do. And you cannot compel a person to do more than that. It doesn't matter if you say you have to be at work 24 hours a day. People find ways not to work when they don't feel like they're being valued or if they don't feel like they're being compensated for that work to do. And I should do a show on that. And just just the, uh, the, the I know I've talked about it in the past, the difference between the work-motivated person and the time-motivated person and that tension that it creates in the, in the medical field. For example, when I was a resident, we didn't go to bed until all the work was done. But a lot of the people we depended on to do that work were just trying to get to their end of the shift. And so everything they did was trying to slow things down so that we wouldn't create a huge workload so that when their time came to leave at 3 o'clock or whatever, they were walking out the door. Whereas we were trying to get as much done as possible because I wanted to go to bed at some point. And I knew I wasn't going to be able to go to bed until the work was done. And so that created this tension. Well, you see the same thing as more and more government penetration gets into our healthcare system. You see doctors uh, doing less and less, uh, and they do what they think that they should be compensated for. Now, one of the things about government is the government is just not looking out for you. They're not efficient, and there are reasons for this, and we've talked about it on this show before, and it's I, I'm, I'm always going to bring this up because it is so important. The great Milton Friedman, the, the, the great Nobel Prize winning economist, uh, made the statement about the four ways to spend money. And they were all different. And the best way to spend money is for you to spend money on yourself. That means it's your money and you're buying the product for you. The cost matters and the quality matters. The second way to spend money is spending your money on someone else. Now, in that scenario, cost matters. It's your money. But you couldn't care less about the, the quality of the product. It's not for you. It's for somebody else. The next way to spend money is to spend other people's money on yourself. Now, in that case, cost doesn't matter. It's, your, it's not your money, uh, but quality matters because it's for you. And then the absolute worst way to spend money is to spend other people's money on others' people. And that is what government programs do. They spend other people's money on other people. Cost doesn't matter and quality doesn't matter. Government always takes their cut. And in that scenario, the system is ripe with fraud and abuse. Now, I often hear this statement about um, greed and all this kind of stuff and, and how that would affect healthcare. And my argument is always, People do people. Some are, some are bad, some are greedy, some are not. You're not going to legislate that out of people, uh, but the system will certainly hold people accountable. Now, the best way to hold a doctor accountable is a doctor-patient relationship. My cell phone number is on my card. My patients have my cell phone number. 
when I get called from the hospital from another doctor consulting me, sometimes that number is blocked. Like, I'm another doctor and they won't even give me their number because they want to be separated from me. They don't want me to have the ability to get back in touch with them because that could create work and, and hassle for them. So they're blocked. But in, in a free market system, my cell phone is on my card. Okay, so I started thinking about governments in general. You know, it doesn't matter what the government is for, whether it's for your school or if it's for your community, if it's your HOA or if it's your federal government. They all function the same way, which is when they other people spending other people's money on other people, they do it very poorly, very inefficiently, and it's ripe with fraud. And I know in my old neighborhood, my wife ended up getting on our HOA. I can't remember what the reasoning was, but she ended up getting on the HOA, and she discovered that a lot of the companies that we were using to do the landscaping in the neighborhood were the most expensive companies because you're spending other people's money. The HOA is collecting money from the neighborhood and they're using that money to pay for the landscapers. It's not their money. They couldn't care less. They just want to get the job done. They call the first name in the phone book or whatever. And then those people do the landscaping and they, they pay. There's no, there's no shopping for a better deal. There's no seeing what you could get for your dollar. It's not their money. And then the worst part is you also have people hiring family businesses and friends to be providing the work for things that needed to be done in the neighborhood, like, uh, you know, building the walls and the front gate and, you know, the work that needed to be done on all the lakes and stuff in the neighborhood. And you see these absorbent prices going up because you've got basically a government official and the homeowners association that's giving a business deal to their friends and their friends are jacking up the price because nobody is is checking the price because they are spending money in the fourth way that Milton Friedman described, which is other people's, you know, other people spending other people's money on other people. It's the worst way to spend money. Cost doesn't matter. Quality doesn't matter. Now, a few years back, there was a situation where uh, there was a compounding cream and um, that we could prescribe and it contained um, some steroids, some antibiotic, some, you know, a lot of different things to help uh, with topical uh, treatment of, of issues um, for different patients who had like arthritis of the knee or some kind of inflammatory conditions and things like that. And it wasn't that it wasn't effective. I mean, it was effective on certain patients, but it was approved uh, primarily by uh, TRICARE, which is TRICARE is the insurance company for our active servicemen. It's a government-run health care program. And what was happening was a lot of these compounding companies were billing TRICARE $7,000. Yes, you heard me right. $7,000 for a tube of topical cream, you know, that you would put, you know, on your knee pain or your elbow pain or whatever. And uh, yes, it was effective. It was helpful. But I don't know anybody who would spend $7,000 of their own money on a cream like that. Now, in a free market system, if I was to try and sell a patient a tube, hey, listen, you got a little tennis elbow. I got this cream. It works great. Here, let me give you a sample. And you put it on. Oh, yeah, man, that is great. I feel great. All right, here's the tube. I need $7,000. Nobody would do that. Nobody. But in this scenario, when you're dealing with the government, it happened all the time. And the reason was other people's money on other people. Nobody cared. Now, eventually, 
what happened was these compounding clinics were getting so rich off of this ridiculous government spending that they started uh, having employees do kickbacks to doctors who were sending in patients who never even saw the doctor. So basically fraud. They were basically fraudulently creating patients and then getting these tubes of, of cream dispensed and they were they were submitting these claims to the Tricare, and Tricare was paying this money, and um, the uh, the patients, uh, you know, the system was getting defrauded. And the thing is, that money is real money. That is, uh, you know, that is money that comes out of the system that gets put onto our tax base, and is uh, incredibly important. Now. Another thing about the government is it creates uh, perverse relationships where the doctor-patient relationship is uh, affected in a negative way so that the doctor's fidelity is no longer to the patient. The doctor's fidelity is to their employer or to their boards who are controlling them. And um, when the Affordable Care Act was coming down for debate, it was obviously very relevant to doctors, and so doctors started showing up at American Medical Association AMA meetings to discuss whether or not we wanted to support this Affordable Care Act. And I'm going to tell you how those meetings went down as soon as we get back from this uh, short break. You're listening to the Doctor's Lounge. I'm Dr. Scott Barber, and you're listening to me on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. I'm Dr. Scott Barber, and you're listening to me on America's Web Radio. And today we are discussing the question of whether or not government is really looking out for you. And when it comes to health care, they decidedly are not. They are looking out for themselves. They do it for political power, and they do it for wealth. And over time, it's been getting worse and worse. 
doctors have always been a fly in the ointment of a socialized medicine system, and that's why they work so hard to control doctors by deplatforming them, by bankrupting them, uh, by controlling them uh, through medical boards and licensure, and they are able to achieve maximum doctor compliance and allow them uh, to use healthcare as a platform to to garner massive wealth and also to control political power. Now, I was telling you back uh, years ago when the Affordable Care Act was up for debate and uh, doctors, because it was such a significant change and, and lurch towards socialized medicine that doctors showed up at these American Medical Association meetings. I was I went to one and I honestly I was one of these people who when I was younger I really hated bureaucracy. My father was in the military and every time whether it was going to the PX to get groceries or going to the doctor or whatever, I just really learned to hate bureaucracy. It's something in my DNA. Uh, it's just it's irrational, it makes no sense. And um, anyway, when my father asked me when I was in ninth grade what, what I wanted to be when I grew up, uh, I, I immediately thought to myself, well, the one thing I don't want to do is work for the government. I'm just not cut out for that bureaucracy. And so I had this attitude of I'm just not going to deal with politics, whether it's my hospital, and I'm still guilty of it today. I, their meetings are, in my opinion, uh, largely wasteful. Uh, and my time is valuable, so I tend not to show up to a lot of those meetings. And I sort of let the government control things. I do the same thing uh, at you know businesses where I've worked. And what I learned was you may not have anything to do with politics, but politics is always going to have something to do with you. Well, when it came down to the passage of the Affordable Care Act, the idea that doctors want to be cogs in a big bureaucratic wheel is ridiculous. In order to become a doctor going to college for four years, getting a degree, going to medical school for four years in an incredible crucible of pressure, getting tested. I, rem I remember those uh, medical school years just getting tested every six weeks with the hardest tests you could imagine, um, reading myself blind for four years. Um, it was really tough. And then going through a residency program where at the time, you know, we were working 110, 120 hours a week. It was really tough. And then all of that so that I can be a, a government bureaucrat, nobody would do that. Doctors did not support the passage of the um, Affordable Care Act because it would it would give power away from the doctor-patient relationship and give it to government, which is exactly what it did. Now, You'll hear doctors out there that support um, more penetration of socialized medicine. And in my experience, when you actually start to discuss the nuts and bolts of socialized medicine, they're against it. Uh, having said that, just like I said in medical school, doctors are just like people. There are some good, some bad, some smart, some not so smart. There are some on the left and some on the right. But overwhelmingly, when the Affordable Care Act was being debated, Doctors were opposed to it. Uh, we went. I went to a meeting of the American Medical Association to discuss it. The people in the room were clearly against the passage of the Affordable Care Act and the AMA against doctors' wishes. They supported. They came out in support of the Affordable Care Act, and the reason is 
the AMA, the American Medical Association, has no fidelity to doctors. Their fidelity is to the government, where last time I checked, they get $100 million funding from the federal government to implement the ICD-10 codes and the CPT codes, which is the coding system we use in medicine to do, do, do procedures and, and to make diagnosis so that we can submit those codes uh, to the insurance companies. Now, that's an example of how you have a government body that's supposed to be representing the constituency, the doctors, and they just completely went against our will because their funding came elsewhere. Well, that is what is happening to you with your doctors right now. We are being more and more pressured to to uh, fill hospital requirements and to do the bidding of what the government of medicine wants us to do, and we are less and less able to to do our medicine directed at each individual patient, which is how I was trained. Um, now, when I see a patient and I talk to that patient and I get to know that patient, I examine that patient, I get to know that person in a, in a very unique way called the doctor-patient relationship. And then I use my knowledge as a doctor or a teacher to explain the medicine to this patient and then my job is to offer treatment options and they usually trust me to be able to go to the literature and research certain things and be able to present the options to the patient and the patient gets to make the choices about how they want to treat themselves and it's different depending on the patient some people choose one way some people choose another there are certain things in medicine that tend to be uh, more uniform for example if you break your hip you get a, what we call a hip fracture you're going to get surgery almost nobody treats that non-operatively that's just one of those things everybody knows that if you do the surgery you tend to do well if you don't do the surgery you tend to do poorly there's not really a lot of a lot of um discrepancy on that but then there are other things how to manage hypertension you know you might have one doctor saying use this type of drug you might have another doctor saying don't use drugs use something else and there's just more variation depending on what the medical issue is but at the end of the day your doctor's fidelity is supposed to be to you well when you become an employed doctor that relationship becomes perverted for example hospitals do not want patients being readmitted within 30 days of a discharge. This is one of those just incredibly draconian um, concepts that came down from the, you know, probably Medicare, I don't know that for sure, but, you know, from a government body where they just got this arbitrary number that that would be a measure of poor doctoring if a patient gets readmitted within 30 days. And so Medicare tethers their reimbursement to the hospital based on how often a patient gets readmitted within 30 days. Well, there are so many different reasons as to why patients get readmitted within 30 days that have nothing to do with the quality of the medical care being provided. Now, I get the concept is if you're a good doctor, then you'll treat the patients well, and when you discharge them, they won't be coming back in 30 days. And if you're a bad doctor, you'll be treating them inappropriately, and because you discharge them, then they'll come back within 30 days. That's a measure of you being a bad doctor. Well, that is how the bureaucracy is so flawed. That is not a good measure of whether or not you're a good doctor. And so what happens is, 
If the hospital is going to measure me as a physician, they're going to sort of rate me as a physician. And one of the criteria they're using is whether or not I readmit patients within 30 days. Well, you've just created a perverse incentive for me so that if I discharge a patient from the hospital and they need to come back for some reason, I'm going to try and keep them away. This actually happens. I see it all the time. And it's crazy. And it's a good example of how when the government is controlling your doctors and controlling your health care, you're not getting the medicine uh, that you need. Now, people have unique problems in healthcare too. And whenever you have a government-run system, they tend to have a one-size-fits-all problem, which means if your problem fits into their paradigm, you'll probably get fair enough treatment. But if you're if your problem is nuanced, you're not going to get treated at all. And I have, you know, examples of that. I know I've told the story of um, of my patient that uh, got their knee replacement done in New York. They came to see me. They were miserable. And I look at their knee, and it looked fine on the x-ray. It looked great. They used the same kind of implant as I did. And um, the patient was doing miserable. It was three years old. Their knee was swollen and hot and red, and there was no sign of infection. Uh, there was no sign of loosening. Everything looked fantastic. Nothing seemed to be amiss. And I think, thought to myself, well, the only thing it could be is you're allergic to something in the implant. And so I sent him to an allergist. The allergist sent back a note, oh, yes, he's allergic to something, very allergic to something. So I had to call the doctor and say, what do you mean something? I need to know what it is. I need more than just something. Tell me what they're allergic to so that I can figure out how to get it out of them. So the, the, the allergist says to me, well, I don't do that kind of testing, but there is a doctor who, by the way, no longer exists. Why? Because he was not reimbursed for this type of procedure, and so he stopped doing it. Why? Because people do what they are incentivized to do, and they don't do what they are not incentivized to do. But at the time, this person was available. I sent my patient to this doctor, and he sends me back a note. He's not allergic to anything. So I had to pick up the phone again, and I called him, and I said, wait a second. The first allergist said he was allergic to something massively. And there is something in that knee replacement he is allergic to. His knee is swollen and red and hot. And the doctor says back to me, he goes, well, I did the disc test, the screening test for all of the different metals on his back, and he didn't react to any of them. And I said, well, he's still got to be. I, there, somehow there's a flaw in the test, which is another good lesson tests don't mean to me what apparently they mean to everybody else these days. You know, everybody says, well, I got a positive test, and they just accept that at face value. To a real scientist, we understand that there are flaws in testing, and those need to be examined. This is a perfect case. So the doctor and I discussed it, and he says to himself, well, instead of doing the topical skin disc test, where you put all these discs on the skin, we'll do what's called an ELISA test, which is an enzyme-linked immunoassay, where you basically take blood and it's a complicated test, but it's a different kind of test to see if he's allergic to any of these different things. And what did he find? He was massively allergic to nickel and zirconium. Amazing, because these disc screening tests, totally normal. But when you did the ELISA test, he lit up. And so I was like, okay, well, let's, you know, let's figure out how to get an implant in there that doesn't have these elements in there. Well, what I found out was, there were no implants in the United States that didn't have those elements. But there was something in Europe that was not FDA approved for use in the United States. So I had to go through this very long, drawn-out process. It took me more than a year. 
lots of paperwork, lots of extra work that I wasn't being reimbursed for, that wasn't being compensated for. I remember he would come to my office and I would see his name on my chart. I'd be like, oh my goodness, I have to see this patient again today. And I, I would say this to their face. And they would say, why is that? And I say, because you're miserable. And because you're miserable and because nobody else will help you, and I am helping you, you tend to glom onto me, which is what I'm here for. Um, and I go, and it creates a lot of work. Most of the stuff I do, I've been doing it for so long, I know what I'm doing. In his case, I was reading and studying like I was back in medical school to try and acquaint myself with everything that was going in. Anyway, we eventually get this uh, knee replacement approved. I revised his knee, did reasonably well. And the knee that I used was so complicated. It was like the first total knee ever developed. So it was very, it was really difficult case. And the point I'm making is before I started working on him, I sent him to a very high profile, you know, it wasn't the Mayo Clinic, but it would be something like the Mayo Clinic that we all know of. And I said, I want you to go get evaluated there. And he says back to me, no, 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 I trust you. I want you to do it. And I said, no, 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 this is not for you necessarily. This is for me. I want you to go somewhere else because I want. we are so far off the beaten path. I want you to go hear from somebody else what your options are so that we feel good about what we're doing. And he went to this place that we all know and we've all heard of. And what he waited in line. He got to see the doctor, and the doctor told him, there's nothing I can do for you. This doctor, by the way, all they do is joint replacements. Now, you might ask yourself, if all this work that this doctor does if the only thing he does is joint replacement why didn't he why didn't he help this guy and i'm going to tell you why because the risk the reward was not there this doctor's room this his waiting room is filled with patients who just have run-of-the-mill joint replacements this guy that i'm taking care of he's complicated he's going to require a lot of follow-up he requires using these complicated knees and this doctor just immediately was like I don't even want to get involved. That's what he was telling this patient. And so that patient came back to me, and, and I took care of him. I had another patient. And listen, this is not like I'm, I am not saying I'm the greatest doctor in the world in that sense, and every other doctor is going to throw you out the door. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is doctors do what they're incentivized to do, and they don't do what they're not incentivized to do. I am incentivized to take care of this patient in this way because my name is on the door of my practice. If he doesn't have a good experience, he's going to go out into the world and he's going to say, Dr. Barber didn't do me right. But because I'm putting all this effort in, he's going to go out and say, man, Dr. Barber treated me so right. That is the doctor-patient relationship, and that's what happens when you have that arrangement. The other doctor, he works for a big entity. It's not really him personally. It's the entity. And so he just made an analysis like uh, it's just not worth my time to get involved, so I'm not going to do it. And in the end... The more and more government penetrates and makes these rules, the less and less power the doctor has, the less the doctor wants to be involved with the patient because they don't have any control. Even if they wanted to do something, they're not able to do it because the their employer will not allow it. And we see this all the time. Now, um, I had a patient that's still raw for me, 20 years old. He had his whole life ahead of him. Um great kid, handsome, you know, big football player, going to be recruited to play college football. He dislocated his shoulder, and um, and uh, he wasn't doing well. 
I examined the patient, and he had a little bit of weakness in his hand. His shoulder was out, and um, he had a thing we call a bank cart lesion, and so I was considering surgically repairing it, and he had a little weakness in his hand. Now, this weakness in his hand could be explained by the shoulder dislocates, and when the ball comes out of the socket, it bangs on the nerves going to your arm called the brachial plexus, and you can get this unusual weakness, and usually what happens is when you restore stability to the shoulder after we do the surgery, then the nerves will recover and that weakness will go away. So that was what was in my head because that's what's common. What's uncommon is a brain tumor. But just like parents of children who are complaining too much, I have a couple, we always have in the back of their mind when they're complaining too much, is it the C? Is it cancer? And, um, you know, in my line of work, I always kind of have that in the back of my mind. You treat what's the obvious thing, but I always think about what is the, the dangerous, not obvious thing, and make sure it's not that. So in this particular case, I referred the patient to a neurologist. And listen, inside baseball talk, inside doctor talk, I've got a, I got a kid. He's 20. He's got a dislocated shoulder, and he's got a little bit of weakness in his hand. This is me sending the referral to the doctor. I mean, to a, I don't even know. Maybe people who aren't doctors get it. What am I really asking this neurologist? What is the question I am asking? Is it a brain tumor? I mean, you have one job. Is it a brain tumor? So I send it. Now, I could have done this work up myself. It's not like I couldn't have done it, but I really I wanted it from a neurologist saying there is no brain tumor. Okay. It's a way I use of checking my own work um, and also, you know, another set of eyes because it's that important. Now, it was unspoken. You know, I, I, the chances of this being a brain tumor in this young kid are so minuscule. I didn't really bring it up to the parents. You know, I don't know. Maybe they understood we're sending you to a neurologist. I, you know, I don't know if they put two and two together. But at the end of the day, what I'm asking this neurologist is, is it a brain tumor? So I get a message back. I get the note back from the neurologist. The neurologist says, no, it's, it's what you think. It's the shoulders dislocating, and it's banging on the brachial plexus, and that's it. And so I took, I took him to the operating room. I, re- I fixed his bank card, and he started doing well, and I would call because it was still in the back of my mind. How's that hand getting? How's that hand doing? And I, I, um, I would call his father, and I know his, his family a bit. And, oh, yeah, yeah, he's doing great. He's doing great. I still had in the back of my mind, I'd like to see it for myself. So some months go by, and uh, he calls me up at night, and he says, hey, Scott, uh, can we come to your house? And I was like, yeah, absolutely, come to my house. So they come to my house, and they were at the end of my driveway, and I came out, and I looked at the father get out of the car, and then his son got out of the car, and the way he was holding his arm, I knew immediately it was a brain tumor. I knew it immediately. So they came down to talk to me, and I kind of looked at them, and I said, well, you know, <clears throat> let's get an MRI of your brain. Um, that's what I was hoping maybe the neurologist would kind of work this up. Um, but I was like, let's get an MRI of your brain, and uh, and we'll go from there. And I, I kind of left it at that. You know, I, I knew... I knew that that was going to be a tough thing for the father to accept, and so I really wanted more information. I wanted to see what 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 exactly we're seeing here before we really got in depth to it. So my intention was, let's get the brain brain scan in the morning, and then I will see him. So the next morning um, comes, and he calls me, and he says, "We're in the ambulance. He had a seizure. We're on the way to the hospital." 
and he asked me, do you think these things could be related? And then I was like, yes, they're related. He has a brain tumor. He just had a seizure from the brain tumor. And it made me reflect on the neurologist. And listen, I'm not talking about any specific. I'm talking about the way medicine values certain um, certain professions and devalues others, and it's government, and it's not based on quality healthcare. And basically, you've got a, a doctor, and this is just me speculating, understanding people. The neurologist knows that it's very unlikely for this kid to have had a brain tumor. I'm guessing he feels like I already kind of figured it out and explained him what happened, and they're basically lazy on it. They were lazy because they they did whatever they did, and, you know, I wasn't there, so I don't know. But the thing that frustrates me is it was such a simple um, – it was such a simple diagnosis, and it felt to me like if you had even just done the basics, you would have been able to come up with an answer. Now, sadly – it turned out to be the worst kind of brain tumor, glioblastoma multiforme, and sadly, this patient um, passed away with uh, around two years. And um, nothing, nothing that the neurologist would have done would have changed anything with this particular case, but it still frustrated me, and it still illustrated to me how important it is to have a free market healthcare system because patients hold doctors accountable. And we have this system where the insurance controls things. The insurance is is controlled by government. Hospital systems are controlled by Medicare and Medicaid, which is ostensibly government. And so, and with more than half of our physicians out there now being employed, we really have a quasi-government socialized medicine system. And it's affecting the quality of the healthcare that we're delivering. And this has been happening over my entire career for 20 years. And um, I've been I've been watching it happen. It's like a slow motion car wreck, and I can just see things getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And doctors um, are getting worse at doing our job. A lot of it has to do with incentive, and a lot of it has to do with over twenty or thirty years or more. I mean, the generation even before me was telling me how medicine was going downhill, but doctors are making that calculation of. You know, young people. So, how long does it take to become a doctor? I go to med school and then this and that, and how much money I'm going to make when I do all that. And then people are making the decision I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go into something else. It doesn't make any sense to me. Or I'm, I'm going to become a PA. That's kind of big these days, a physician's assistant. It's a more reasonable amount of training, and people are making this calculation. I don't have much less um, ability to practice than a doctor. So, why would I go through all that doctor training when I could do the, the much less? PA training and make similar money. Um, and so we're seeing this de-evolution of our healthcare system. And I've been sounding the alarm for as long as I can remember. And I'm still going to sound the alarm. And the thing that people have to understand is people are people. You cannot legislate quality medicine. Um, you cannot legislate against bad medicine. And that's what's happening a lot, too, is we're creating this sort of adversarial um, arrangement between doctors um, amongst themselves and in hospital systems because government is setting up these arbitrary metrics to be able to v- evaluate physicians that have nothing to do with patient care and it oftentimes compel doctors to deliver worse care 
or or not get involved. That's kind of the big thing that happens these days is doctors kind of don't see an upside. And I, I shared with you um, my back injection last show where I've, you know, I have arthritis in my back. I got a lot of uh, herniated discs and everything, and I was really suffering um, with my back. And uh, this went on for about six or eight months. And I really uh, got to the point where I was like, I think I'm ready for a back fusion, which is not a great solution. I'm, I'm an active person. I, I like to do some MMA and I like to play golf. And, I, you know, I'm still very active in a back fusion. Um, although much improved, it's not a great solution, especially for me when I have every level is damaged. And so I was really motivated not to get a fusion. And so because I have my own practice and I have the ability to get injections, I was able to go and work my back up with MRIs and CT scans. I was able to sit with my doctors and talk about, and I know what I'm talking about. So I was able to ask very intelligent questions because I know what I'm doing. And more importantly, I'm really motivated. It's my back. So I'm really looking at all the possibilities here. I got something like eight spinal injections to figure out where my problem was. And then um, I finally used PRP, which I happen to know works well, but insurance companies don't typically pay for it. And so you wouldn't be able to, if you were to go to your regular doctor using your regular health insurance, you probably wouldn't even be offered this. But I knew it existed. And so... I got these injections, and I've never been better in 20 years, and I was able to work my problem. Now, if we had a free market system that didn't have all this penetration from government and health and insurance companies, which to me are just quasi-government agencies, that would be developed. People would get out there in competition, and they would figure out ways to solve this problem. The market would get the prices where they need to be. And just like we see with every other kind of medical issue, when free market is involved, you get the best quality care. You have the most options at the most reasonable price. I hope I've uh, been able to connect some dots for you guys today. And I, again, I hope I've made the case for the virtues of free market medicine and the evils of socialized medicine. Just remember... The people who want socialized medicine want open borders with people flooding across with uh, no testing for COVID. Somehow we're supposed to just ignore that that's happening. But if you want to go anywhere, you got to get tested to go to the shopping mall. Uh, we got boys competing in women's sports. Um, we got people who want no police. And we've got uh, critical race theory going around in schools where we basically want to start segregating people based on race. The people who believe in that stuff want socialized medicine. I'll see you next time on the Doctor's Lounge. I'm Dr. Scott Barber, and you're listening to me on America's Web Radio. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.